Well, more than a month ago, I introduced this expository series in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled, as you see there on the screen, Living Life in Perspective. Indeed, this is a very challenging book in the Old Testament. It is full of many dark threads as well as some beautiful chords and threads in that tapestry that the writer of Ecclesiastes, either Solomon or the teacher, as he's also referred to, is explaining. Today we return in this series to chapter 4, beginning a new chapter. We're going to look at that chapter in its entirety. And I'm going to read it in just a moment. And I just realized... Uh, I'll read it from the screen, not a problem. Um, uh, but uh, I left, uh, of all things, my Bible. But I always have it with me right here. <laughs> but I'll read it from there. It's a little easier. Um, I thought, what am I listening? I felt light today walking out of my office. Uh, but uh, about this series, again, a lot of people today value authenticity, and rightly so. And you know what? If you're a young person, you really like keeping it real, well, you, you should like Ecclesiastes because it's going to keep it real. And it's sometimes going to be real uncomfortable because there are some things that are very, very hard. It looks at life as it is, but it's not a book without purpose and without hope. There's a lot of ultimate questions asked and answers are hinted at. They don't find their fulfillment in this book. That's to come as we will see. Again, once again, even today. But this is some heavy sledding today. And so let's dig in to our scripture reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no one to to, no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. 
For he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move under the sun. Along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of all whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains and abides forever. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult and troubling passage in many ways. The Father, help us understand the message today. Help us gain from it. Help us see the ultimate solution that it points to. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The author of Ecclesiastes, identified as the teacher in the book itself, began by describing the problems of what is referred to as life under the sun. That's basically life here and now in a fallen, broken world full of sin and misery and even death. It rehearsed themes, the first two chapters of monotony and vanity and futility and the certainty of our own death to come. And then beginning in chapter 3, it starts diving in deeper to these problems, to these troubling areas. And as it were, the teacher goes on a sightseeing tour of the planet. He starts looking around, all around him, observing scene after scene. And last week, we saw two things that he observed was injustice and our own impending mortality. Well, he's going to continue the theme again today. And this time, not just two, but four things are going to be observed. Four observations, four scenes are going to be surveyed by the teacher. And by and large, it is a frustrating exercise. And yet there are rays of hope. There are places when the sunlight breaks through and we see the idea and the concept of not best, but better is possible. There are some things that are horribly bad, but there are some things that are better. And so we look at this passage and today. This chapter contains these observations of life under the sun. And it also contains in a loosely connected fashion, the idea of three is better or the better third. There's something going on and both are difficult or bad and yet there is something that is a better involved in this outline. That's the pattern 
that prevailing pattern that we see. And so the outline's real simple today, super simple. <laughs> the first third, the second third, the fourth, th- third third, and the fourth third. That's what we're going to be looking at real quickly. Now, I'm not going to go back and read through what I've already read. This, it is capturing basically an essence. And I'm going to try to go through that and then pull it all together. The first third. In verse 1, the teacher saw the oppressed and there was no one to comfort them. Now, it doesn't say where he saw this oppression, what it looked like. It takes many forms, as we all well know, sadly, in this world. The first verse is the reality of it, and verses 2 and 3 that we read are the reaction to it. Okay? First verse is the reality of it in a fallen world, and then the reaction to it. Then and now, oppression is an egregious blight upon God's earth, upon this planet. Under the sun, many people live under the thumb of those more powerful than they. Do we have to talk about dictators, masters in the past and present? Even sometimes people that might look altogether good and upstanding and yet taking advantage of others. Injustice, oppression is part of of life in a fallen world. The Hebrew prophets of old in the Old Testament decried it. It was not God's intention, and yet the human heart finds ways to get around what God directs and to try to take advantage. And it all leads to the second point that we're going to see in a moment. But after his lament, after the teacher looks at this and he sees how horrible it is and he realizes there's not even anyone to comfort them, He compares three people, the oppressed, the dead, and the unborn. That's the comparison. And he seems to arrive at the conclusion that the better third is to never have been born at all. You may be saying, wow. You mean, how can that have the upper hand of these three options? To have to look on it? To not see someone comforted? Or to to die, but even yet never to see it? Interesting, later on in this very book, Ecclesiastes 7.1 says this. There is no remembrance of former things. Excuse me. And the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. The day of death is better than one's birth. What can this possibly mean? How how does this, I mean, what is this all about? You see, I think the teacher here is feeling some of the same things that Job and Jeremiah and Elijah and other saints and men and women before him and since him have felt in the face of the cruelties and the oppression and the injustices and the sadness that comes as part of this world and its brokenness. In Job 3.3, Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. Jeremiah said, when I, why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow? Jeremiah 20.18. You see, I think that's what the writer is here, the teacher is saying. As he observes this horrible situation, this injustice that's not being righted, and there's no one to comfort He despairs. 
You see, I think it's basically something like this. Have you ever heard someone say, I really am glad my mother isn't here to see this. Have you ever said that? Have you heard someone else say that? I wish so-and-so, I'm really glad they're not here to have to live to see such a thing, such a day. I believe that's the essence of what the teacher is saying here. Remember, the teacher is looking at the world as it really is under the sun. A closed system. He's looking at it with eyes of only what you can see and hear and understand and witness and touch and taste. There's more. He's already alluded to that, and we will see more of that later. But that's what he's saying. When you, live, when you put those blinders on and look inside that box, it is not a pretty picture. It would almost make you wish you could never live to see such a day. That's how painful life can be. You know, here we sit in our comfort, in our air conditioning, and there are people around this world when the very breath of life is pain. There are people being stamped out, trampled down, downtrodden, and justly brutalized, treated, sold as chattel, imprisoned, even life snuffed out. We can somewhat understand if we look hard enough, but we don't look long, do we? We take diversion. We go find something else to look at. It's a lot more pleasant. It's a lot more interesting. It's a lot more enjoyable. But the Bible's real. Doesn't doesn't sugarcoat it. Puts it out there as it is. The second third in verses four through eight, We see another comparison between approaches to work, to labor, and the focus problem is twofold. It's envy and isolation. At the beginning, it's envy, and at the end in verses 7 and 8 deals with the subject of isolation, aloneness. You see, there's an old saying that goes like this when it comes to thinking about envy. Any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your successes. It takes a true friend to share your successes and joys. Now think about that. (laughs) Anybody can join in with you when you're in sorrow, but if I got to watch Joe, my friend Joe, if I got to watch him experience success and experience joy, I just might get a little bit envious of him. See, that's the point. Envy is the driving machine here, the teacher says, for so much of what goes on under the sun, so much of what we do in our lives (coughs) is some kind of an attempt to get ahead or to keep up. We're either working hard with a motive because we got to keep up with the Joneses or we got to try to get ahead. If we have to step on somebody's shoulders or even head, so be it. In verses 7 and 8, the teacher shows us another problem beside envy. He 
leads, that leads to isolation and loneliness, loneliness. That guy that he depicted, that guy made it to the top, but he lives there, what? Alone. He's got no one to share it with, no one to give it to, no one to pass it on to. He's accomplished, he's made it, but he lives there alone. Three Dog Night had it right. One is the loneliest number. It really is. It's the loneliest number. Now, again, we see a comparison. He compares three approaches to work. And he makes the third attitude what we could call the balanced one. And that's the better third in this section. He commends it over idle laziness on the one hand and manic, frantic busyness on the other. And he's saying both of those are not the way to live. There's a better solution. You remember Aristotle's golden mean? My, in my family, we joke about I always go around claiming I'm the golden mean. You see, you're over here and you're, I'm, I'm the perfect. And, of course, they usually laugh real hard at that um, because it's not always true, but I like to say it anyway. But it's the idea of the, of the perfect balance of things. The idea of the golden mean is something that brings, keeps from two extremes that are harmful. One excess it's the desirable middle between two extremes, one of excess and one of deficiency. Something's missing on one, the other one's excessive. For instance, give you an example, uh, courage, good thing, good value. But if it's excessive, it can end up in re- re- recklessness. If it's deficient, it can end up in cowardice. Thus, seek true courage. And the science says there's a, there's a, there's a golden mean, as it were, for the teacher says, the way we approach work. Not being lazy and idle so we have nothing to share with others, but on the other hand, not doing a two-fisted job with everything always trying to carry the weight of the world, trying to get more, to get more, to get more, to keep up and to fuel envy. You see, there's a way to find contentment in our work with one hand. There's a metaphor there, and that simply is saying you don't go for all that you can. You recognize there are limits. And so you fill that one hand, but you keep the other hand open to pass on, to give, to share with someone else. You see, when we look down at the one hand that is full, no longer clutching with both hands, trying to get it all, then we realize that we really do have, after all, more than enough. We've really got everything that we need. I love this quote by Chesterton. He said this. Well, I thought I had that quote by Chesterton. (laughs) I guess I don't. But basically, he was talking about the idea, the answer is to our problem of envy and desire for more and more and more is recognize you can either try to fill it up or you can settle for less. 
You, just, you can be content with less. In other words, the point is all about could it possibly be that a formula for contentment is by way of subtraction, not addition? Is it possible? That seems to be what the teacher is suggesting. There's a better way. It's a better third. It's not by trying to get more and more. It's by saying, you know, I really don't need that. Have you not felt really good every time you carry your stuff, all your junk to Hope for Haiti yard sale for the last nine years or whatever it's been, we've been doing this? Doesn't it? Don't you feel lightened, lifted up spirit? Because what? You, were, you didn't need all that stuff anyway. You just got an opportunity to get rid of it. And you actually feel almost better, lighter in your step. Could it be that the formula for contentment is to have subtraction, not addition? That doesn't mean you have to divest yourself of everything. But you should be willing to share it with others. Why you've been given it is not just for you. It's so that you might be generous and helpful to others in need and to God in, in gratefulness. The third third, in 9 through 12, the comparisons concern people this time. And you know what? Likely travelers. That's the metaphor. Seems to be depiction of people on a journey in the ancient Near East. Perhaps the teacher had seen some pilgrims on the highway and he said, you know what? Come to think of it, traveling alone ain't what it's cracked up to be. Two is better than one. And he thought about it in a number of dimensions. He thought about, you know, when it comes to work, you get more done. Uh, when it comes to um, walking, it's safer. You know, if the road gets unlevel, somebody falls because the road caves away, they can help pull you up, pick you up. It, it's warmer in a cold desert nights. You, you employ another three-dog night principle, not the group that I referred to earlier, but the real three-dog night. You know what that is? That's when you get three dogs and sleep with them to get the body heat against you in a really cold night. You see, when it comes to walking, work, warmth, and watch care, helps you be able to fend off bad guys and girls, people that might might attack you and try to rob and steal. And so he says, if, if two is good, then he poses the interesting question, what about three? Or which is just really a metaphor for more, group, or we call it today what? Community. Community. You see that, this commendation of community, of the value of community, is the antidote for what infects the local church in so many places, in so many ways. We got people in the churches still trying to do Lone Ranger Christianity. And as you're going to learn next week, if you come to the class that the, the chaplains, the three chaplains are teaching, you're going to realize community it's a group project. God, your sanctification is a group community project. God tends to work through in community. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to belong to one another. We don't go it alone. The Christian life is too difficult and too dangerous. 
We need one another. And that principle is being upheld here. Now, let's look at the fourth third briefly. In verses 13 through 16, the comparisons are between royals, between kings, three kings involving royal succession. There's an old king, and I believe the text is a little difficult. Some people think it's two kings, but I believe it is three that is being referred to the way the text explains it. There's an old king, there's a young king, and then there is a second young king that replaces the other young king. So three comparisons. Now, let me get to the punchline. Let me just take you all the way, start bringing it right down to the punchline. Here's what I think is going on in this passage. Even at the top, and the highest Even if you make it to the top of the mountain, whatever you're trying to do, here's a reminder. Even in the palace, yes, being wise and being blessed is better than being foolish. You certainly want to be one of those guys over the other. The foolish old king, you don't want to be that guy. But even if you do, know this for certain. In time, you too will be forgotten. You too will fall out of favor. In the end, the popular youth falls out of favor and is forgotten. Oliver Cromwell, when he was instrumental in removing Charles I from the throne of England and setting up the English Commonwealth, and he was a very popular man. They tried to make him king. He would not accept it. But on one occasion, he said to a friend, in the face of all the roaring adulation and praise and people wanting him to be king, he said this, do not trust to cheering crowds. For those persons who shout as much if you, they would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. Fickleness, it won't last. It's fleeting. It won't stand. And again, the teacher's concluding remark is vanity, vanity striving against the wind. Now, you see, you're thinking right now, wow, he was beginning to get hopeful. He was getting out of the, the black hole that he was in, and we were starting to feel a little more encouraged about the value of community and the need for it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, he just nosedives right back into a depressing state. We're all going to be forgotten. These great kings eventually will be forgotten. What's up with that? Well, here's what I would tell you. I would tell you the rest of the story. Because what have you heard me say over and over and over again? This is a part of the word of God. It is the word of God. It's the first word, not the final word. In other words, there's more to come. And we have to, in order to understand, we have the light and the lenses to see what this writer could not. He knew the answer would come from God. He knew that he would trust himself to God no matter the circumstances, but he didn't know what it would look like. We do, because we've read the rest of the story in the New Testament. And here's the way it comes down. 
You see, of all these kings that will be forgotten, they all will. He's already told us that. He's telling us that again. But hundreds of years after the teacher wrote this book, a king was born. Not an obvious king, but one in obscurity. And yet a prophecy was written of him. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, there is a king that has come and is coming again that will not be forgotten. His fame shall spread from shore to shore till sun and moons shall wax and wane no more. Jesus shall reign. He is the king. And do you know that the ultimate answer to oppression and isolation and forgottenness and for forsakenness was met in him. The king came, born of a virgin, born under the law to fulfill the law, and in that work to redeem us and to provide the answer to all of these other great issues, he himself was isolated. He himself was alone and forsaken of God. He himself was oppressed in order that you and I, the guilty, might go free. That's the promise and the hope of the gospel. This one came and went through that so that you and I will ultimately find there is an answer. One day all oppression will cease. One day justice will come. We don't fully see it now, but we are to be agents of it in the moment, in the hope of it, all because of what this king that will never be forgotten has done, is doing, in and through us, and will do when he comes again. Amen. Father, help us now to understand that the ultimate answer to these troubling, dark threads is that you have come and you will come again. And Father, in the meantime, may your presence be with us and help us to be ambassadors of light and the immortality that you have brought to life through your resurrection and your return to the Father. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and make things right in Jesus' name. We pray, amen.